Hi everyone, it's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington DC on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Chapter 32, Flesh, Blood, and Bone. Harry felt his feet slam into the ground. His injured leg gave way and he fell forwards. His hand let go of the Triwizard Cup at last. He raised his head. Where are we, he said. Cedric shook his head. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Casper, my grandmother, Ruth, she had a very hard childhood and teenagehood and early 20s. She went straight from the concentration camps to she got married in January of 1946, had three kids and five pregnancies in four years. And then they moved from Brussels to Paris, from Paris to Tel Aviv, back to Paris to the United States. And then she got a job at a factory. I mean, it was just like this crazy, crazy life. And then in 1956, she and my grandfather and their three children, including my mom, lived in Glendale, California. And my grandfather got promoted from dishwasher to waiter at a very fancy restaurant, the kind of restaurant where you, like, coddle an egg for the fresh Caesar salad dressing by the side of the table. And this meant that he would make enough money that Mama could quit her job at a factory and, you know, focus on raising the children. And very shortly after she was able to quit her job, she got terrible, debilitating vertigo, and she ended up having to spend 11 months in bed. And I often think about that year in bed as someone with depression who sometimes spends more time in bed than I would like to. And I have justified that year in bed for her as just like her body processing everything that it had been through in the past 30 years. Her body was able to stop, and so it stopped and was like, stay down, heal. You have a lot to go through. And me, with somebody who has depression, I spend a lot of time in bed. And because I don't have the traumas and sort of good reasons that mama had, I think of those days as wasted time. That's time where I watch Grey's Anatomy reruns and sleep when I could be reading the great works and doing all of the things that I want to do in the world. And I'm in the middle of trying to figure out how I can rewrite the story for myself about those days in bed without overindulging so I spend more time in bed. But it was just making me think about what we consider to be a waste and when it is productive to call something a waste and when it is unproductive and unhelpful to do that. But I think it is very important for us to see this death of Cedric as a waste of a good life and for us to meditate on that so that we can focus our energies on making sure that we waste as few wonderful lives as we can. But I also think that I need to find a way to not see those days in bed as a waste. So I'm interested in this idea of waste and when it is important for us to name something as that and when it is important for us to resist naming something that. Well, Vanessa, I'm 
so astonished by Mama's story and just to think about that amount of time in bed, especially with three young children and the experiences she'd had. And yeah, just this bigger question of waste, of what do we categorize as waste? Even just thinking about that definition of dirt is matter out of place. Like, what is waste? Is it just time that we have spent differently than we planned? I'm really interested in digging into this together. I think that'll be juicy. But before we do that, let's not waste another second before we do the 30-second recap. Segway king. And I believe it's my turn to go first. Will you time me? Yes, of course. Thank you. And listeners, for those of you reading along, and I have to say, I am in love with each and every one of you who's reading along with us as we go. It is so cool. You will know that this was a very short chapter, just six or seven pages. And so you can expect a richness of detail in our 30-second recaps, which are unparalleled in the rest of the series. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry and Cedric get magically pulled to this other place. They're at a graveyard, very frightening. Uh, and there's something here rustling. And then like something carrying a little bundle of something in his arms. And then a little high voice that says, kill the spare. And then Avrada Kadabra and of Cedric. And then Harry's being tied to the tombstone of Tom Riddle. And then um, blood of the father or bone of the father, blood of the enemy. And then into the diamond pool goes Voldemort. And he comes out re-embodied stronger than ever. All right, Vanessa, it's your turn. 30 seconds to recap chapter 32. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Cedric and Harry know that something's amiss. They're like, wands out? Yes. And they're like clearly scared. And Harry is being like dragged by something that is missing a finger. And he's like, oh, obviously that's Wormtail. And Wormtail's like really anxious about the fact that he has to cut off his own arm. And is like, oh, I don't want to, but he does it anyway. And, um... And there's, like, the biggest cauldron that Harry has ever seen, which makes me wonder about whether or not Percy would try to help regulate it. And um, Voldemort gets, you know, back up. By get back up again, I mean evil reemerges in the world. Vanessa, here we are at a chapter we've been referencing for the last two years because this chapter contains the line, kill the spare. And what's more chilling than a command to execute that is so, it's not even heartless, it's just perfunctory. And we're looking at this chapter through the theme of waste. And waste is so much about what do we value and what do we not value, of what is worthy and what is worthless. And the fact that Cedric's life, a character that we have gotten to know as an honorable, gentle, kind, young man full of potential, is dismissed and seen as extraneous and so disposable reveals just the intense, terrifying nature of Voldemort. And so I want to roam around that moment, those three words, for a good little while. How do you reflect on that through this theme of waste? Well, it's not a waste for Voldemort. To your point about waste is about what we value and what we don't. From Harry's point of view, this is a waste of a life. Mm. And from Voldemort's point of view, it's just waste, right? This is just trash to be dealt with. Mm. And what it reminds me of are, you know, whenever there's a tragedy abroad, what often gets communicated here is 30 people died and there was one American. And all of the sort of news coverage here is about the one American. 
And that is us saying as a culture, like, in the stories of the lives of the other 29 people don't matter. And what makes somebody matter to us is their nationality. And that's it. And everybody else is just a waste to us. I mean, it's impossible to, like, completely care about the whole world. And so I understand why we do that. But when you see it so starkly in the text like that, you see the truth of how brutal, into your word, chilling it is. And even the language that he uses to give that instruction, the word spare, he doesn't say kill that boy. It's not even a human being that Voldemort is engaging with. Like, it's a spare part. It's something I don't need. It's not that we don't know that these decisions get made all the time. Like, that cut in federal funding doesn't matter because it's not for people like us. You know, whatever it is, we only see the results of those decisions. But here, we see the exact moment where someone verbalizes that decision. I don't even know what to do with it. It's that terrifying. I mean, it reminds me of the Hannah Arendt theory of the banality of evil. Mm. That, you know, hate to some extent isn't the same as evil. Evil is seeing something as waste when it's not waste. Mm -hmm. And that is what real evil is. It's just not caring about a whole thing. I often think about that. There was a moment where I had locked myself out of my office in New York and had left my wallet inside. And I lived six miles away from my office, and it was, like, too late that I, like, felt safe just sort of walking home. And so I just needed $2 to get on the subway to pay for a one-way ticket, and then I had money at home that I, you know, would be able to get back into my office the next day. And I was, like, dressed nicely for work, and it was so easy for me to get those $2. The next person I saw, I said, I'm so sorry. I locked my wallet in the office, and I need to get home. Do you have $2 I can borrow? And how different that exchange would have been Mm. if I looked different, if Mm. I was dressed differently. Mm. There are people who you're like, oh, I would do that. I have left my wallet inside places before and have needed two bucks. And then there are people who you see yourself as different from, that they are sort of spares, and you wouldn't have that same interaction. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's about whether or not we could see that happening to us. And we lie to ourselves. If somebody gets cancer, we immediately want to be like, well, were they a smoker? Did they drink a lot? We want to see that they had it to some extent in their own control so that we can say that will never happen to us. And with Cedric, it's just so clear that it could happen to us, that all Cedric did was show up. That's so interesting, Vanessa. Yes, because we were talking on the one hand of structural oppressions, a reason why certain categories of people, whether it's by race or gender or whatever it is, get othered and get much more vulnerable. And then on the other hand, there are situations where it's a randomness that makes it terrifying when you think about the shooting in Las Vegas last year, for example, people who were just walking to and fro on a street or at a concert, there's a randomness to the suffering that happens, which makes it therefore uncontrollable, which for some people makes it all the more frightening then, particularly if you're in a dominant class or if you have you know, multiple privileges in your identity. And Cedric has all of them, right? He is a, a student who does well. He's popular. He's a man. He's a white man. He's champion in this competition. And here, that means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. 
And the thing that I'm really compelled by is that we are, like you said, with a cancer diagnosis, for example, we're able to tell ourselves stories that make us feel safe, when in reality we live in a world where we should be doing everything we can to give everyone the levels of safety that Cedric has, and at the same time know that even that still leaves us vulnerable. Yeah, I think that that is why the death of Cedric, which is, as we've talked about, it's not the first death in the series. Absolutely. And Bertha is still unfound. Yeah. Bertha is still missing. Frank has died. We have seen horrendous things. And so many other people are going to die. But it's this feeling of if it could happen to him, it can happen to any of us. And there is no story we can tell ourselves about, well, if he had only done this thing differently, It's just a total random act, whereas like Bertha went to Albania and Frank went into the house and we can tell ourselves these things that we would have done differently. But Cedric, there's like nothing. He made the right choice at every turn and this awful thing still happened to him. I don't know. Is it helpful to contemplate that? I don't know. What I am compelled by, and I have to say this is my favorite chapter in my favorite book of the whole series. Which sounds very strange, but what I love so much about it is that this shadow of evil, this kind of omnipotent presence of discomfort and terror is no longer hidden. It is in full display. We know what it looks like. We know who it is. We know who's responsible. And there is something ironically comfortable about knowing where evil is. We don't get that luxury most of the time in our lives. We don't get that luxury of pointing to one thing or one person from whom all terror emanates. And so I do think it's important to contemplate this question, even if it makes us uncomfortable and frightened. Because it'll help us hone in on where the evil is. If we look in the direction of who is treating the most people as waste, Mm. it can point us to where that root of evil is. And not just in others, but also in ourselves. I think that's what I appreciate is that this chapter is unflinching in its insistence that we must interrogate where Voldemort is rising in our own hearts. Like there is something certainly in me, and I hope it's not just me, but like it is easier to walk through the world putting people in categories of like not worth my time, worth my time, not worth my time, worth my time. And that's what Voldemort is doing here. It's like not worth my time, worth my time. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please 
This is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who've recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash harrypotter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash harrypotter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrant samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. Casper, where else do you see this theme of waste in this chapter? Vanessa, there's three compelling moments in the text when Wormtail is kind of preparing the ingredients for Voldemort's return, where he says, bone of the father unknowingly given, you will renew your son. Flesh of the servant willingly given, you will revive your master. Blood of the enemy forcibly taken, you will resurrect your foe. And I saw reading this chapter through the theme of waste, a pattern that I'd never noticed before, which is that He's essentially saying renew, revive, resurrect as a sort of new version of reduce, reuse, recycle, which I just thought was really, really funny. But does that strike you in any way that he is introducing these kind of ritual words, renew, revive, resurrect? I mean, he's definitely like using all parts. I'm a vegetarian and I'm like a pretty strict vegetarian, except I buy my dog meaty bones, and I justify that they are parts of the animals that wouldn't otherwise be used. And he is using the bone of his father, and that would not otherwise be used. I mean, what is interesting is how we think about the category of waste and how it's created. We have this idea of the economy as this linear thing, and there's this competing idea which is growing now, the idea of the renewable economy or the holistic economy, where nothing is ever waste. The whole point is to see every resource that it has another way in which it can be useful. And that's exactly right. You know, thinking about a bone of an animal has this secondary purpose. But where Voldemort doesn't live by the rules of the renewable economy is he creates waste. He doesn't find a purpose for Cedric. And of course, we're stretching a little bit in terms of the conversation here. But I think it is interesting to think about that category of what paradigm we live in of when there is waste and when there isn't waste. Because if we can truly live in a world where everything is interconnected, then there never can be waste. It just doesn't even make sense as an idea. 
And I think the other way to think about it is in terms of what we ask from one another. If you are asking a friend to support you in a way that genuinely helps you, then you're asking for energy that's sort of renewed. Like they are giving energy, but it it helps you get through a difficult time. But then, you know, there's like using your friends when you don't actually need something from them. It's like asking Wormtail to chop his own hand off. There are things that you can ask from the people around you that are completely unfair and wasteful to ask of them. Absolutely. And that it is a give and take. That's how energy works, that it is in motion. And we never see that kind of reciprocity between Voldemort and anyone else who is in his service, for example. Like, Voldemort would never chop off his own hand to help Peter Pettigrew in some way. I mean, he wouldn't even spend a Sunday afternoon with him if it wasn't somehow in his purpose. Voldemort is a symbol for the extractive nature of how our economy works, when what we've seen with Cedric and Harry is this much more reciprocal relationship of equality and of trying to create a new reality by changing the rules of the established system. They've refused to let one person be the winner in the Triwizard Tournament, and both of them have taken the victory. And now they're kind of coming face to face with the old reality where, you know, there's only one person who's worthy and the other one is just excess and just left to rot. Vanessa, we're continuing with our spiritual practice of Chavruta where one of us asks a question of the other and tries to offer an answer, and then the other returns with another question. We try and find the truth in the middle of the conversation between our two respective arguments. And I want to draw our attention to the physical body of Voldemort. The text tells us the thing seemed almost helpless. It raised its thin arms, put them around Wormtail's neck, and Wormtail lifted it. It has this kind of freakishly childlike quality, which is so unsettling. But mostly I'm interested in Voldemort's face. The fact that as he has created the Horcruxes and has killed so many people, his physical body is deformed and he becomes more and more snake-like. His nostrils are flared, his eyes are red. And I've always just been challenged by that idea that somehow his physical body is shaped by his evil deeds. And it seems different from someone like Mad-Eye Moody, where there's battle scars. This is more than that. And so I, I wondered, why does he look less and less human and more and more like this sort of snake baby demon? And my best attempt to try and answer that is that somehow his humanity is lost and therefore he looks less and less like a human. But why would he then look more like a snake? I'm, I'm just really confused by it. You know how, like, old married couples start looking like each other? Oh. I mean, he and Nagini spent a lot of time together. <laughs> to some extent, it makes sense, right? If a couple's been married for 60 years, they probably, like, eat the same and, like, have similar exercise habits and have traveled the same. And They go to the same store to buy their anoraks. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, if you live lives in parallel, you sort of, your bodies have the same stimuli. But what's problematic about your question, what I'm wrestling with is the fact that the implication of Voldemort being so ugly and looking like an embodiment of evil is that 
we think that we can see the true character of people based on how they look. Right. And we know that that's not true. And it's such a 19th century Victorian idea of what an evil person would look like. It's right. The they of, would have a certain size head. Exactly. Exactly. Like it's a eugenics-laden idea of how to understand good and evil. I mean, snakes are an interesting thing in the text. A snake is sort of the first time that we see Harry have a connection in book one, chapter two. In the zoo. In the zoo. It's with a snake. So in the text, certainly, like, snakes are not just evil. Harry is a parcel mouth, and Harry's not evil. And as we heard in the previous chapter, there's a prejudice against parcel mouths that they must be evil when we know that that's absolutely untrue. And so I think that it's easy to say because Voldemort looks snake-like that has something to do with his evil. And I guess I just want to reject that idea. I want to separate the two. He looks like a snake and he's evil. But Dennis Creevy, if he looked like a snake, would be Dennis Creevy. We know that people do evil things and are still handsome in a conventional sense. And we know that people have to rip their bodies apart because they get breast cancer. You can have scars from head to toe for things that have nothing to do with your inner character. But it's more complicated than that because it's about what he's done that's transfigured his body. At least we don't hear anywhere in the text that as a young man, the man who becomes Voldemort looked evil or frightening or snake-like. It's because he's killed rampantly and because he's intentionally split his soul that his body has changed. I just have such a strong resistance to it because we know it doesn't bear out in the world outside of Harry Potter. I mean, I do think that it's really interesting the different ways that our life and our choices and the world around us changes our bodies, right? We know that giving birth changes your body in a major way. There are stories about people's hair going white overnight out of stress. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea that your body is in conversation with your life. Mm. But the end results can be for any number of reasons. Mm. And so the symbol is true and we have to interrogate the why. So somebody might be missing a hand because they cut it off to help facilitate evil regrowing in the world. And someone else might have their hand cut off because they were trying to save a life. And so all of this like physical representation of life should be an invitation for curiosity rather than an invitation for judgment. There's one other moment in the text I want to draw our attention to as we think about this question of bodies and what it means. Cedric has been killed and his body is lying not far away from Harry. And we're told that his eyes are blank and expressionless like windows in a deserted house. And I I actually think in some way that description would work just as well for Voldemort because as his soul has been broken down and broken down, at this point there is nothing left of his humanity, like that that sense of what brings people to life, that animating force has been so corrupted, like it's a deserted house, like there's no one to find. Even if you went in with like a lamp of kindness, I think at this point when he is resurrected into his new body, there's nothing left of who he was or who he could have been. And I think that that's true in other physical changes too, right? Like when you come out of any surgery, it's not just that there have been physical changes to your body, but you've gone through like a psychic, profound change. This week's voicemail is from Alison Bolt. 
Hey Casper, Vanessa, Ariana. I just listened to your episode about the first task and wanted to share a couple thoughts. Casper, you mentioned that maybe if it weren't Cedric, Harry might not have told another Hogwarts champion about the dragons. And I wanted to weigh in and say, I think Harry totally would have warned anybody about the dragons. And not just because he always plays the hero, but I don't think he'd want one of his classmates to die. Partly because he already understands about what death means, and he's already got a relationship with death that is, of course, going to change in the end of this book. But here he's seen the dragons, and he really feels like they could kill him. I might be thinking about this because I just reread book seven where Harry even saves Draco Malfoy. And Malfoy is someone where Harry thinks to himself, I think here, and definitely in other parts of the books, like, oh, I wouldn't wish this thing on anyone. Mm, well, except maybe Malfoy. But at the end of the day, he doesn't want Draco to die. And he even kind of feels bad for him. Alison, I wonder, though, if... Harry, at this point, practices on Cedric, practices his, like, goodness and generosity on Cedric so that by the time we get to book seven, he has sort of practiced the skill enough that he even extends it to Draco. Mm. So I think maybe Casper was right and you're right. The thing that it also makes me think of, Vanessa, is, like, how Harry's previous experiences with death shape his experience of this one. And what does Cedric's death mean for how he thinks about the death of his parents and and the deaths that he's going to encounter going forward? This is the first time he's had a long-standing relationship with someone. And I think the fact that he is not going to be believed about the circumstances of this death are going to make him much more internalized. Like we've seen him reach out to professors in the last two books, first with Lupin and now with Moody, right? He is building relationships with authority figures. And what's going to happen in book five is I think he's going to separate himself more. I think he's going to internalize it more. So I think this experience of death isolates him again, just like it did at the very beginning of the series. There's some sort of turning point here, I think, in what death means in his life. I mean, I think he also, because of his experience with death, knows that death is permanent, right? Mm. And that's always the surreal part of someone dying for me is like, oh, I'm never going to see them again. And there's always this point in grieving for me where I have a moment where I'm like, okay, I'm like tired of that person being dead. Time for them to come back. And then realizing again and again, it's like, nope, this is just forever now. Mm. And I wonder if Harry has like a very firm understanding of that because of his experience with death and therefore is able to internalize that more quickly about Cedric. Although we hear in this chapter that like even before he can process that Cedric's dead, he gets dragged into this other moment. So Casper, it is now time for us to offer our blessings and there are no women in this chapter. And Mm -hmm. so I would like to offer a blessing for people who feel underrepresented in spaces in which they want to be. There are no women in this chapter, and I just want to say that. There are no women in this chapter. Mm. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless this week? I'd like to bless Harry. He's kind of a passenger at this point. He has very little agency. He's injured. He's on the floor. He's tied up. He's having to experience incredible pain. He's used as a living sacrifice as Wormtail collects his blood. And I think what's most painful for me to imagine is that Harry, like literally his own blood is used in Voldemort's recreation. And to feel like you are so essential 
to violence and that it, that you are being used against your will to enact pain and suffering on the world. So for anyone who feels like they're being used in in destruction and violence and they have no agency to counter it, this is a blessing for you. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 33, The Death Eaters, through the theme of necessity. It's getting really dark, guys. It's pretty scary. <laughs> There's no way out. This episode is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Terkyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to Allison Bolt for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ludley, Julia Argy, and Stephanie Paulsell, and we will see you in London. Cool, blimey, governor. Casper, I'm going to dress like the queen. You don't already? <laughs> Why are you wearing that crown? I was listening to Semisonic's closing time today, and it kind of refers to that, like, every new beginning is some other beginning's end. <laughs> you can't quote Semisonic. No? No. They were lame I know who I want <laughs> to take me home. You don't have to go home, but you, you can't, can't stay. stay. That's what Voldemort should have said to Cedric. It's like, I don't want to kill you, but you can't stay here. You don't have to go home. Yeah. You can't stay here, said. <laughs> and then said is like, I know who <laughs> I want to take me no. home. Cho Chang, I know who. <laughs> Hi, it's Joseph Fink. My friend Jeffrey and I created Welcome to Night Vale back in 2012. Normally, we're the ones turning our ideas into writing. But for our brand new show, Start With This, it's you who will do the creating. On each episode, we'll talk about a topic of the creative process. Then we will give you two short assignments, something to consume and something to create. You can share your work on our membership forum to see what other people are up to. We want you to start creating one simple assignment at a time, because the best way to start writing is to start writing. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.